Good morning. Our scripture passage for today is Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Ketalaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who know me know that I enjoy a movie or two on the side. Particularly westerns I enjoy, probably because of the decisive showdowns, the epic confrontations that they always seem to to lead to. I think about Tombstone, Wyatt Earp, and Doc Holliday taking down the cowboy gang and the OK Corral, but clearly my personal favorite, Clint Eastwood, who, by the way, is still cranking it out, okay, at 89. In the movie Unforgiven, he plays a bounty hunter that comes out of retirement And he ends up wiping out a whole posse in a bar with a couple of guns all by himself. And the reason I think these things are compelling in a lot of ways is that Westerns are unambiguous in terms of good and bad, right and true, evil and and, and righteousness. There's always an epic showdown, a confrontation. Somebody walks away a winner. Somebody walks away a loser. And in Genesis 14, what we have here equivalently is a spiritual showdown. Now, we've been journeying through the book of Genesis. We preach through books of the Bible here at Four Oaks. And we come to this dramatic scene, so to speak, where we have two kings who are meeting Abram in the plains near Jerusalem. You have the king of Salem and you have the king of Sodom. And just as a, as a bit of context, remember that, that Abram has been living as a stranger in a land promised to him by God, that God would bless him, make him a great nation. And when he enters Canaan, he and his nephew Lot, there is a dispute about where each of them should go. They each have a large number of possessions. And Abram lets Lot choose which path to follow. And as we saw last week, Lot chooses foolishly. He decides to to head out into that luxury beach resort known as Sodom and Gomorrah on the sea on the shores of the Dead Sea. And, and if you know anything about the history of that of those two towns, we're going to get there shortly. You know that this was was a foolish choice, and Lot ends up getting um, in the middle of a of a of a not a skirmish, but in fact a war 
where, where he is living has been captured and conquered and he and his wife and children and family and all of his goods have been taken away into possession and they come and tell Abram, hey, you're no good nephew Lot, guess what? His chickens have come home to roost. And as we saw last week, Abram doesn't hesitate. He plows right into the middle of that, of that, of that mess and he rescues his nephew. And as we saw, it's a, it's a picture, it's a demonstration of mercy and of grace and of forbearance and the gospel. Well, this is just a continuation of that story. What we have here in Genesis 14 is the aftermath of that battle. Here we have Lot having, I'm sorry, Abram having emerged victorious. He's recaptured all the goods and possessions, the women and the children, and he's escorting Lot back to his hometown with all of his goods and all of his people. And the text seems to indicate that as Abram is in this area called the King's Valley, this is an area about two miles south of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a huge plain. It's where armies and councils and kings would occasionally meet or powwow or those sorts of things. But here, almost simultaneously, Abram is met by two different kings and their forces. We have the king of Salem on one hand and the king of Sodom. And each of them come to Abraham with a different proposal, a different offer, something that they are putting on the table. And it's here that Abram is going to be faced with the spiritual decision of his life to this point. And so that's where we're going to go today. We want to understand that choice he had to make. We want to understand how it relates to us, how it applies to us. And so there, there's three parts of this sermon. So here we go. We're going to first of all talk about two kings. Then we're going to talk about two priests. And finally, a better way. Let's look first at the kings. It says that this king, king named Melchizedek, and I dare you parents to go there with one of your children. Like, like, like if any, any woman is expecting a, a baby boy, just let me know. Melchizedek, I'm, I'm buying for it all the way, right? So Melchizedek, it says, is the king of Salem, and Salem is probably short for Jerusalem. And at this point, God's people have not taken possession of Jerusalem. This is in the very earliest days. It's an outpost, and Melchizedek is some sort of regional king. His name, in fact, means king of righteousness. And he comes down from Jerusalem to meet Abram in this plain. And verse 18 makes an interesting note. It tells us that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. And, and when we read that, that should kind of take us back a little bit. Because immediately we're like, well, well who is this guy? And, and where did he come from? Has he been like living underground waiting for the apocalypse? I mean, like, you know, we thought Abram was the chosen one. And here this guy, Melchizedek, seemingly a priest of the most high God. What's going on here? And something to remember is that while Abram was indeed God's chosen one, he was, he was the seed. He was who God was going to bless in terms of bringing up a nation, a people, ultimately the Messiah, there still were probably what we would call pockets of faithfulness in the known world at that time. Descendants of Shem. People like, for example, Job. We think Job probably lived around this time. These were, these were remnants. These were pockets of, 
of, of true worshipers of the true God. And Melchizedek apparently was such a person. And it says in the text that Melchizedek goes out and he wants to give something to Abram. Let's look at what he wants to give him. First of all, it mentions this idea of wine and food, which undoubtedly is not like a little noonday snack. This is a euphemism for a feast. So it would be customary in those times when there was a conquering king like Abram would have been recognized as to greet him, to celebrate him, to treat he and his men and his forces to provide for them to celebrate this great victory. And the text in verse 19 tells us why Melchizedek was blessing Abram. Look in verse 19. It says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Somehow through the divine revelation of God, Melchizedek understood who Abram was. He understood that, this, that Abram was God's chosen, that it was through Abram and his seed that God was going to carry out the history of redemption. And it says that he came out simply not to give him a bunch of money, not to give him a bunch of accolades, but in fact, to bless him. Now, that word bless, I mean, it's so overused in a Christian context, right? I'm sure some of you even this week tweeted, hashtag blessed, okay? If you did that, I will block you, okay? I, I do not want to hear that. I think I did it once or twice this week. But anyway, that, that's, a, that's a different story. You know, blessing is just one of those like spiritualized, squishy words, you know, won't you say the blessing or, or pastor, give us a blessing. In reality, the word blessing communicates something fundamentally important. An affirmation, or I'm sorry, a blessing is when someone speaks the favor of God into your life. A blessing is when someone prays God's protection and power. You know, when, we're, when we get up here in a couple of weeks and do a baby dedication, and we, put, we give these children and their families a blessing, this is not just some sentimental little precious moments opportunity here in front of the congregation. We're really saying, God, would you come alongside this family? Would you protect them? Would you empower them? Would you protect them? And Melchizedek, in a sense, wants to come and bless Abraham by, listen, affirming who he is and what he's done. He wants to give assurance to Abram that Abram, in fact, has been doing God's will. You've got to remember something. Abram has been promised this land, but he is living in the middle of pagan territory. He is surrounded by enemies. God's promised him and his descendants this land, but Abram, Abram doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know under what circumstances. And you can imagine Abram, after a while, from not hearing from God, is probably like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm out here, but I haven't heard from you. I think I'm just supposed to be continuing to do what I'm doing and to be faithful. And, and a lot of us find ourselves in those places, even right now in our lives, don't we? That, that we're, we're trying to be faithful, be faithful in our marriage, be faithful in our parenting and our work and our finances and our ministries. And sometimes we are just kind of going through it and we have to ask God, are, am I on the right track here? Am I on course? Am I doing what you've asked me to do? 
And God graciously at different times and seasons brings particular affirmations for us. Sometimes we're waiting weeks, days, years maybe for some of us. But Melchizedek has been sent by God to affirm Abram in what he is doing. So what Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is fundamentally offering him here is he wants to give something to Abram. He wants to give him a spiritual blessing. He wants to give him the affirmation and encouragement of the Lord. The king of Sodom, however, has an entirely different agenda. We're going to see here, he doesn't so much want to give something to Abram, but he wants to get something. Look at verse 21. The king of Sodom, I mean, he gets right to business. Right? This is a command. It's an imperative. The Hebrew literally says, give me people, you keep the stuff. That's essentially what it says in the Hebrew. It's, it's about that terse. Which on one hand, sounds like a handsome offer. See, all this stuff that Abram has captured along the way doesn't really belong to him. He's kind of confiscated it from these kings who conquered Lot. And so Abram's got Lot's stuff plus these other people's stuff. And, and he's just carrying it right along. And what the king of Sodom is basically proposing is, Abram, you were victorious here. You saved our bacon. Now keep the spoils of war. Which sounds, on a material level, not a bad deal. Just give us our people back. You keep all the stuff as a reward for what you have done for us. However, this has all the markings of one of those offers from the Godfather, right? Where he makes you an offer you can't refuse and you wake up and there's a horse head in the bed or whatever, right? These goods, it's very clear, are going to come at a very high cost. What is the king of Sodom essentially saying? Abram, let's be pals. Abram, let's be friends. Abram, let's, let's join together in this worldly friendship, this political alliance. See, you helped me, and now I'm going to give this stuff to you so that one day I'm going to call in that favor. One, one day you're going to be indebted to me just as I've been indebted to you. And here Abram has a choice, right? Because God has promised Abram this land. He has promised to build him a great nation, but he has called him out of the pagan context he's been in. He's called him to worship the true God. He's called him to sort of set up his flag, so to speak, and to be an enclave, to be a remnant, to be a faithful community. But here he's got, on a worldly sense, a golden opportunity, right? See, he's surrounded by enemies, but now he can have peace. He's surrounded by people who want to take his stuff, and now he can have security. He's, I mean, you know it's got to be hard being Abram in this pagan Canaan land. People have to look at him as very strange, and now what an opportunity, right, to live at peace among his fellow men. He's going to go along to get along. And I would propose, just as Abram is faced with these two choices, and understand, these, these two kings are just, prox, they're just proxy battles for Abram's soul. Abram has to decide, 
As for me and my house today, whom will I serve? Am I going to wait it out? Am I going to be faithful? Am I going to trust God? Or am I going to take the easy way, the wide path, the road that looks so good, but we know ultimately leads to destruction? Every single one of us is faced with those kind of decisions every single day. God, are you going to provide financially? Because it would be so much easier to manipulate things here and there. And Uncle Sam doesn't know what to do with the money anyway. And he just wastes it. And it would just be so much easier, Lord. I I know so much better what to do with that money than some institution, right? God, I know there has to be a better person for me out there than whom I'm with. God, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful and all that, but I, I mean, this is slow going and I'm not happy and I'm looking around and God, surely you would want me to be happy, right? There's got to be another relationship, another friendship, another financial situation. Guys, we, we do this all the time. We're faced with these choices every single day. So what's Abram going to do? Look at verse 22 and 23. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Listen, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. In other words, God has made a set of promises. And if I sort of take things into my own hands and do it my way in the way that I deem right, then it's God's glory that I undercut. If I take possession of this land according to my alliance with these pagan kings and these pagan peoples who aren't interested in God, it's God's glory that's at stake. See, as we're going to see through the book of Genesis, it's a supernatural work of grace from start to finish for God to be faithful in the lives of his people, to establish them, to bring about the Messiah. And if Abram casts his lot now with Sodom, he's basically saying, I've turned my back on God. You know, sometimes as sinners, even sanctified sinners, we, we love to couch our moral choices in so much ambiguity, don't we? We, 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 we intentionally, in our own hearts, want to make things hazy want to make things complicated. Well, pastor, you just don't understand about this situation. I mean, you know, if you, if you just knew the nuances of my particular situation, you would understand a little better why I'm choosing to make the choices that I'm making. Abram saw right to the heart of this dilemma and this choice. And so what's he going to do? Very interesting that when Moses is recording this, the, he, he, he includes this little tidbit in verse 20 that's almost, for us, can be like a throwaway comment. But it says this at the end of verse 20, And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. If Abram wanted to leave not a shadow of a doubt about the allegiance of his heart, then the best way to communicate that would be through his stuff, right? 
He gave a tenth of all the spoil to Melchizedek. Now, remember, in the ancient Near East, gifts were highly significant. And gifts were often given by the inferior to communicate the worth of the superior. Now, we're getting into Advent season shortly. And when we study that time-worn tale about the wise men journeying to see Jesus, what did the wise men bring? Gifts. Now, this is not because Jesus was going to be able to use them. or they, He even knew at that point in his life what was going on, but it communicated value. It communicated worth. It communicated where their hearts were aligned, and that was of the worship of this baby boy, this Messiah King. See, I think the reason that Moses includes this here is that there's no quicker way to discern the allegiance of our heart than to look at our pocketbooks, than to, than to examine our credit card statements. I was going to say to check our checking book, but can we come, right, I mean, how many of those do you write? One or, one or two, right? Your, your, your bank statement, your credit card statement. See, few things reflect more clearly the heart's priority than money. And not just money, but our time, our resources, our priorities. You know, oftentimes in America, it's just easier to write a check, right? As long as I don't have to give up my precious time and my precious self and my emotional resources, so to speak. And here, uh, Abram wants to make a decisive statement about the allegiance of his heart Every pun intended, he puts his money where his mouth is. Now, one of the things that I think we ought to consider is that every single person in this room is generous. Every single person in this room, myself included, is giving. The question is not whether or not you're generous. The question is what you're generous to. See, all of us have priorities. All of us have things that we hold in great value and great esteem. And that's where our money and our time and our priorities and our energies and our thoughts and our labors, they pour in that direction. And one of the reasons at Four Oaks that we do talk unapologetically about giving and funding the ministries of the church and giving our tithes and offerings to the Lord is not simply because we want to fund ministry, but it's because giving, as we see in this text, listen, is a spiritual act of worship. Always. Now, don't get me wrong. You can give and your heart, your heart not be right with God. Absolutely. People do this all the time. But dare say... A true disciple of Christ's generosity will ooze out of them in some capacity, in some form. It's a category for the follower of Jesus Christ. It was a category for Abram. Understand, Abram's not buying the grace of God here. He's not securing tit for tat. Abram is responding to the grace of God. The grace of God has been poured out upon him. He is responding with a heart of worship. See, and what Jesus says is that where our treasure is, 
our hearts will be also. There's a reciprocal relationship. You see, our resources don't just reflect the priorities of our hearts, but guess what? As a discipline, they help shape them. They help conform them. It's a, it's a discipline in the life of the Christian that helps to align our hearts with kingdom priorities. And so Abram, he gets this, right? He gets this. He worships the Lord with his heart. He worships the Lord with his giving. He makes his choice clear and decisive. What about you this morning? What about you? How does, how does this call to the following of two kingdoms or one of two kingdoms, how does that settle on your own heart? What, is, what does your own life communicate about those realities? And, and if you're like me and you're evaluating those things and you maybe aren't liking everything that God's showing you right now, there's a great second point for us. Two priests. Let's go back to the text. Verse 18. Melchizedek, as we mentioned earlier, is not just a king, but interestingly, Moses notes to us that he is also a priest. Now, in the Old Testament, priests and kings were two fundamentally different roles, two fundamentally different offices with two fundamentally different functions. Fundamentally. Got that? Kings, now listen, this is, this is a good distinction, I think, represented God to the people. Kings represented God by making decrees, declaring laws, enforcing the obedience of the law through God's commands and God's word. Kings represented God to the people that they ruled. Priests, on the other hand, represented the people to God. See, priests would come alongside of people and pray and offer sacrifices and intercede because as kings ruled and represented God people understood our hearts are far from God and we need an intercessor we need someone who will advocate for us with God that was the role of the priest but in the old testament these offices were never combined they were never wrapped into one and the times that they were or that someone crossed that line, catastrophic results occurred. So, for example, Saul, he was waiting on Samuel to show up. He was gonna, Samuel was going to offer sacrifices before they went into battle. Saul was tired of waiting. And so what did Saul do? Saul offered the sacrifices himself. And God says, that is going to cost you your life. That is going to cost you your kingdom. Yet here, Melchizedek is both. And this is why, even though this little blurb about Melchizedek is three or four verses in Genesis, it's often and repeatedly quoted by other scripture writers that, that point to it as signifying something really, really important that we need to understand as it relates to the priesthood. Now, David does this in Psalm 110. Psalm 110.4 says this, and remember, David is writing about the Messiah. And, and Psalm 110, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. For good reason. It's a messianic psalm. And here's what, here's what David says. He says, The Lord has sworn 
and will not change his mind. Now he's speaking about Jesus. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the writer of Hebrews says much the same thing, Hebrews 7.3. He, meaning Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of day nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So here's, here's, here's what's happening here. New Testament writers, as they're reading this story, and they see that Melchizedek, this obscure Old Testament king and priest who combines these offices together, is in fact a type or a shadow of what is to come. He is a pointer. He is a marker to Jesus. The Old Testament, by the way, is full of these. We think about the sacrificial lamb that had to be offered and its neck broken and its blood spilled for the atonement of sins. And John the Baptist, playing off this typology, when he sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, what? The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. A lamb doesn't take away sin. The lamb is pointing to the permanent sacrifice. So in the same way, Melchizedek is pointing to Jesus. Now understand something. Melchizedek was just a normal dude. He had parents. He lived and died. That's not the point. The point is that Moses doesn't articulate all those things in the text for us. And because of that, we can, the New Testament writers would look at Melchizedek and say, oh, that's a pointer to Christ. That's going to tell us something important about Jesus. And by the way, guys, that's how we're to read our Old Testament. Jesus on the road to Damascus in Luke 24, he says, the whole Old Testament is about me. Which means that what we're going through here are not simply nice moral stories or Aesop's fables or poor Richard's almanac, or timely wisdom for a chaotic world. (laughs) No, no, no. Everything that we read here this morning is about Jesus. It all points to him. It's all fulfilled in him. Now, you may say, Pastor Paul, that's all great. Thank you for that theological lesson. Thank you very much, okay? Why Why is this important? It's simply important because Moses anticipated what is we all know to be true, is that everyone in here needs a priest, don't we? Everyone in here needs someone who will represent them to God. Someone who will plead on our behalf. Someone who will advocate for us. And by the way, guys, this is so, this idea of needing a priest or a mediator is so wed into our human consciousness that even atheists, even people who aren't religious at all, oftentimes at the end of their lives, who will they call for? The priest, because they know there's something wrong. There's something going on in my soul. There's something going on in my heart. There's something that needs to be made right. Everyone, listen to this, the religious, the non-religious, everyone in here has a priest. Everyone in here has a mediator. Everyone in here has something or someone through whom or by whom we make sense of the world. We relate to the world. We make sense of things in our own heart. 
that we look to for value or for worth. When we're, we're feeling depressed, we go to food. When we're feeling unhappy, we, we look to money and achievement or sex. When we want to numb out and turn our minds off, we go to media. All of us have a mediated relationship with everything around us. And Moses wants to tell us and have us ask this morning, who's your mediator? What's, what mediates your reality for you? What is it that you go to in that moment to make sense of the world? When things aren't right, you turn to this. When, when, when you're feeling down, this is where you go. All of us have one. Jesus offers us something infinitely better. So what I want to do is spend these last few minutes of this sermon talking about a better way and how the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, by virtue of the fact that he is in the order of Melchizedek, is different than any other mediator we could ever imagine. He's different than the Old Testament mediator, which is what he was addressing in Hebrews He's, he's greater or better than any mediator you might have or that I might have. And here's four things that he tells us that are just, Christian, there's sometimes when we come to the text, we just need to behold. We just need to look. We need to see. We need to let it just sit. Let, let, these, let these things be that for you. Number one, Jesus is a priest for everyone. See, Old Testament priests were for Israel, for God's people, ethnically. Interesting, though, that when Melchizedek comes out in verse 19 and he refers to God as God the Most High, that is a universal term for, for the Godhead. What he's pointing to there is that Jesus, by his fulfillment of this passage, is a priest for everyone. He is a priest to the whole world. Anyone in this room, anyone that you know can come to Jesus. Anyone can lay claim to his blood and his sacrifice for sins and his forgiveness, which means the priesthood of Jesus obliterates racism. It obliterates class envy, every kind of bias, any kind of boasting in the flesh. It obliterates the inner circle Students who are here this morning, it obliterates the in crowd. No matter where you've done, where you've been, where you're going, or what's going on in your life right now, Jesus is a priest. He can be a priest for you. Number two, Jesus is a permanent priest. Listen to Hebrews 7. 23 through 24, the former priests, and he's talking about the Old Testament priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, hold, but he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Guys, when you were asleep last night and weren't even conscious of the fact that you needed a priest, Jesus was at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Sometimes God graciously reveals our sins to us, but if he were to reveal all of our sins to us all at one time, you and I would be absolutely undone. We need an intercessor. 
We need someone at the right hand of the Father who's advocating for us through his own blood. And by the way, your need and my need for a priest, an intercessor, won't end in this life. It will continue on for eternity. That's why we'll be gathered around the Lamb of God singing, Blessed is the Lamb who was slain. For all eternity. We'll we'll never not need a priest or an intercessor. The Old Testament priests, they needed a whole army of those guys, right? Because they do what we do. Fail, get sick, die, fall down on the job, and then, then it was just next man up. For Jesus, just one. Just one. He is our permanent priest. Number three, Jesus is our perfect priest. Hebrews 7, 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So these Old Testament priests had to offer up sacrifices every single day, all the time, in perpetuity. It never stopped. You know, and sometimes when we have a mediator that's not Jesus, that mediator's never satisfied, is it? We're always going back to it. Always going back for that hit. Always going back for that, that sense of fulfillment. Always going back to it because it, it just didn't quite meet our need the first time. That's not the way it is with the priesthood of Jesus. He is a perfect priest, which means that he only had to offer sacrifice for sins how many times? Once. Just once. You don't have to keep asking Jesus into your heart over and over and over again. Jesus died for your sins once for all. He's sitting at the hand of the Father and he's advocating on your behalf. He is the perfect priest. See, another thing, Old Testament priests, how did you become a priest in the Old Testament? You were born into it. You were from the line of Levi. And so guess what? You had all sorts of scoundrels in the priesthood. You had all sorts of fallen men. And you find this all the time in the Old Testament. These dudes offered some unauthorized fire. They were consumed by the earth. These guys touched the ark and they were dead. These guys, I mean, there's just failure all over the place. Brooks, you have, if you know Jesus, if you place your faith in him, you have an intercessor for you who never ever fails you. Ever. No matter what you've done this morning, no matter what burden of guilt or singe of conscience might be inflicting you this season, none of it, none of it is too much for him. He is the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Lastly, Jesus is a priest that brings permanent peace. Permanent Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God. Hebrews 5, 9-10 says this, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because you don't have to wake up every morning wondering, do I have peace with God today? If you know his son, Jesus Christ, and you've placed your faith in him, 
then he has made sacrifice for sins once for all. He's interceding for you right now. Your peace with God is permanent. It's not in question. He is a priest for everyone, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. Even if you're listening to the story of Abram and saying, Pastor Paul, but you don't know, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the kingdom of Sodom right now. I feel like in so many ways my choices have, have, have aligned me with this kingdom and not this kingdom. This is the text for you. Jesus, being in the order of Melchizedek, was embodied prophet, priest, and king who died for you, who spoke a word over you, and now rules over your life. It's all offered. What does it take? It's all offered by his grace. Trust him today.